please open to 1 Corinthians 6. And uh, let's read the word of God, which is what? Eternally true. Yeah. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. This is the word of the Lord. Now, right before this section, the Apostle Paul was warning the Corinthians that certain categories of sinners would not inherit the kingdom of God. So in verses 9 and 10, immediately above our passage, we read this, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? And then he lists the unrighteous in categories. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So we've got ten. Of those ten, how many of the list are sexual sinners? Four. Four categories. Fornicators, adulterers, the effeminate, and homosexuals. Now, our sermon today is Flee Immorality. That's the title. And this is the theme of this section of 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul has dealt with the Corinthians for allowing in their midst and being proud of their tolerance of a man that was committing incest with his father's wife. And he deals with this, with every aspect of it. Then he deals with them going to court against each other. But now he's coming back to this theme of sexual immorality again. And he starts by dealing with, and and any good teacher is going to anticipate the weasel phrases and words that everybody will use to escape the burden of the teaching, right? And so you always have to be aware as you teach, whether it's your children or your husband, and yes, wives do teach their husbands, (laughs) right, love? Okay, all right. She made me say that today. It's a joke. Everybody that teaches, whether you teach children or your spouse or a church, whoever you teach, you always have to anticipate the weasel, you know, the, the wobbly, the, the, the escape mechanisms of your students. You should be able to anticipate them. And the Apostle Paul is a good teacher because right here what you see is he's anticipating the weasel factor with the Corinthians when he writes them about sexual immorality. And he says to himself, I know what they're going to do, those scoundrels. He says they're going to say that 
In Christ, we're free. Now, does anybody identify with that? Isn't that exactly the message that every single Reformed church in the country gives you? In Christ, we're free. We don't have to worry about obedience anymore because in Christ, we're made for freedom. And so the Apostle Paul is going along and he's going to deal with the fact not only that they have incest in their midst and have not purged it, but that they're giving themselves to every form of sexual immorality because they live in Bloomington. Everywhere they look, everything they read, every movie they watch, everything is sexual immorality. That's what it is. And the world is so bored with it that they're taking Viagra and that they're trying to like find new perversions that can excite their passions because the old normality is utterly boring. Right? <laughs> can we identify with this? Sexual beauty has become a thing that causes us to yawn today. To say we're satiated doesn't get the half of it. One of the great tragedies of the world we live in is that young people are growing up without excitement about physical intimacy, about sex. We're jaded. And this is what the Corinthians were. The Corinthians were utterly jaded. And so the Corinthians, living in the midst of sexual immorality of an unbelievable amount and kind, every variety in the world, right? The Corinthians had a rubric, had an argument, had a justification that allowed them to feel spiritual while they gave themselves to sexual immorality. Now, what would that be? In Christ, we're free. This can't be here. Okay? Where's Jody? Yeah, yeah, that just can't be there. That's the second service I've moved it today. Because Bam. Um, and so freedom in Christ is... A wonderful thing, and the Apostle Paul sees that they're using it for a very dirty means, all right? And so he says, in the first verse we're studying, all things are lawful for me. And what he's doing there is he's quoting himself, probably. So if you go to Galatians and you see that he's fighting against the Judaizers, those that said that you had to be circumcised, what he's telling them is, you have been created for freedom. Don't let them put you back under the law again. Are you with me? And so everybody learns the lesson. I'm created for freedom. And he says, okay, I'm going to go back and, and deal with sexual immorality. Now listen to me. It's true. All things are lawful for me. But not all things are profitable. He repeats it. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So he's anticipating their weasel words, their, their phrases, their, their rubric under which they're justifying sexual immorality. And again, like a good teacher, he doesn't immediately say, are you saying that sexual immorality is part of your Christian freedom? No. What he does first is he takes halfway step. And he says, okay, let's deal with something that you are free in. Let's deal with the fact that God has given you freedom from the Old Testament ceremonial law. All right? Let's deal with the fact that God has said to you, through the Apostle Peter and the sheet coming down from heaven, that there are no longer clean and unclean foods. You are free. You don't have to eat 
Only things with cloven hooves or not cloven or whatever it is. You don't have to live by the Old Testament ceremonial law that makes a distinction in every single food between what you may and what you may not eat. So yeah, you're free. But let's look at the one area where Christian freedom is most explicitly taught, which is ceremonial law food. Okay, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. So what the Apostle Paul does is he realizes that they are going to say to themselves, you know, Christians are free, freedom in Christ. We're not under the law. The Apostle Paul said that. We don't have to be circumcised. We don't have to be observant about this particular food being good and that bad. All things are lawful. He says, okay, let's take that as it stands. Now listen. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. In other words, yeah, you can drink alcohol, but what if your brother or your father is over for dinner and he is just turning his back on alcohol and it's a matter of life and death to him? Is it profitable? It's lawful. Alcohol is not prohibited in Scripture, but is it profitable? And you go, well, (laughs) I feel like you're putting the noose around my neck again. Wait, 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 wait. All things are lawful, but is it profitable? And you say, hmm, boy, I don't like that. He says, so in other words, even with food, it's clear that there are boundaries to the lawfulness, to the Christian freedom that we have, right? It has to be profitable. And you say, well, what's the point of a freedom that's judged by profitability and helpfulness? Well, this is the nature of Christ's perfect law of love. It's not that you're given over to every license and every bondage and every perversion that you want, but it's that you're brought under a much more intense law, which is the law of loving your brother, your father, your neighbor. Do you understand? And all of a sudden, the freedom that you thought you had becomes clear. It's a freedom to love as Christ has loved us. And you go, well, that feels like bondage. And I say, well, then you're not a believer. And you go, what? (laughs) And I say, well, the nature of a believer is that he forgives as he's been forgiven, that he loves as he's been loved. And so if you refuse to love and to forgive, you're not free at all. You're under bondage. The Christian says, everything's lawful to me. And I won't drink because I'm going to have my father over for dinner or my mother over for dinner, and she's in a battle for her life with alcohol. And you say, but wait, it says there, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, and God will do away with both of them, which is a dismissive statement. In other words, it's like these considerations are for this life, not for the life to come, right? And so why are you bringing me under law about my stomach and food when God's going to do away with both of them? I say, because you're under Christ and the law of love. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. It's not profitable for you to use any freedom in such a way that it harms somebody that you love. And you go, well, and we had a very interesting discussion um, during Sunday school because what, then we're left back where I, I thought I'd gotten rid of 
my background where in order to join the church of my childhood, you had to promise you'd never touch alcohol. And so now, because there are so many people who are tempted to love alcohol, does that mean that Christians will never drink? And I say, no, it doesn't mean that. What it means is that you love your brother and sister in Christ. You do what is love for them. And there are some Christians where it's clear to me that to love them is for me to drink in front of them as they struggle with alcohol. Now, how could that ever be true? (laughs) Well, I'm not going to go into it. But there are some people that need to learn self-restraint in the presence of their temptation. And we as Christians should be able to discriminate between those who need to learn it in front of them and those who we should not even give a hint of alcohol in their presence. And there are differences between people and their temptations, and we need to love people enough to know the differences between people. The Bible does not tell us to not drink. What it says is that we're not to be lovers of alcohol. And what we always want to do is trot out laws that are very objective and quantifiable and clear to replace the law of love. And what that's to do is to say all things are not lawful. We need to say all things are lawful, but everything isn't helpful, because then you have to make judgments about what is and isn't helpful with every individual person. You say, well, that's tiring. And I say, well, that's what it means to love. It's tiring. Then it says... All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. (laughs) Okay, now, for me, what does this mean? Well, (laughs) what food, what drink do you feel on the edge of the precipice of being mastered by it? All right. Now, some of you are sitting there going, (laughs) every single one, (laughs) because some of you are gluttons, all right? Some of you are saying, I refuse to bring my life into conformity to the parameters of avoiding, uh, uh, I don't know what they call it, sugar frenzy of diabetes. Some of you have heart problems. Some of you, um, do you see, I will not be mastered by any of them. So first, we love others. Not everything is helpful to them. Second, we have been bought with a price. God has purchased us with the blood of Jesus. And we have been purchased for freedom. So if the freedom that God has given us we use in order to bring ourselves back into bondage, it's to pervert the work of Christ. The point of the work of Christ is not for us to be free to go into slavery again. And so, no, I'm not going to be mastered. And remember, we're still on the stomach, which is a thing inconsequential. Even with the freedom of the stomach, All right, ceremonial law. Even with that freedom, we're under the law of helpfulness and we're under the law of not being mastered by it. All right? And you say at this point, well, wait a second. It says there that 
all things are lawful for me. It's a categorical statement. How can you give with one hand what you then take away with the other? Either all things are lawful or things aren't lawful. You can't have it both ways. It's a categorical statement. All things are lawful. And I say, look, Scripture does this all the time. My favorite is where Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged. Categorical statement. Doesn't say don't judge all the time. It just says judge not. And what everybody wants to do with that is make it a categorical statement with no limitation on it whatsoever. The same way with we are free. Categorical statement with no qualification whatsoever. The problem is that right after Jesus says, judge not lest you be judged, he says, don't cast your pearls before a swine. Right there. Cheek by jowl, right next to each other. And so that means that there must be some men, some women, that we are to make a decision that they're swine, that they're pigs, and to not give them precious things. And when I preached on this, I asked the congregation, so who are the pigs in your life? And that's not a good thing to Jews. <laughs> you know? And you go, well, I don't want to think about that. And I say, why? And you say, well, because Jesus says, judge not, lest ye be judged. And I go, well, Jesus also said, don't cast your pearls before swine. You see, the problem is that the life of a believer under Jesus Christ is a life of love and discernment. And what evangelicals hate more than anything else is discernment. Because discernment is day by day, minute by minute, second by second, and it's either motivated by judgmentalism or love. And so it always has us having to examine our motives, our hearts, having to examine other people. In other words, it's hard work. But it's amazing to me that when it comes to the garden... Discernment is a joy. I mean, think of how much time you put into deciding which variety of tomato you're going to plant. And then you talk to other people about it. You know, think of the discernment, the produce section of Walmart. You weigh this, you weigh that, you knock on this, you sniff that. <laughs> right? You watch them, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then you go out in the garden, you see whether you have Japanese beetles, you see whether or not you've got some blight, you lift the tomatoes to see what's on In every other area of life, we are constantly cultivating discernment. But when it comes to the things of God, we hate it. We want to give good work everywhere else, but we want the Christian life to be easy. Why? Well, because it's grace. It's freedom. Finally, in church, we have a place where you don't need to work. You don't need to feel. You don't need to love. You don't need to fear. It's just nice. You know? We don't have to sit next to a husband and wife and resent them in worship, you know? Because we've been created for freedom. And grace. And freedom and grace. And forgiveness. But him forgiving me, not me forgiving him. <laughs> you are free. Your freedom should be useful. 
and it shouldn't reduce you to slavery again. You're free. It has to be useful, and it can't be to enslave you again. Now remember, where's Paul headed? Well, Paul is headed into sexual immorality, and we're still just at the stomach. And so what he's preparing us for is the fact that when it comes to sexual immorality, you are not to use Christian freedom as a means of justifying your sexual immorality. Now, would any of us do that? Dear brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, would any of us do that? How do we do it? How do we do it? Well, the way we do it is by saying everything is of grace. And we know that we shouldn't say, so let's sin that grace may abound. And so we just think it. Every morning we get up and we remember that precious promise that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then we go out and we look at women's bodies on the bus. We open our computer facing the wall so that other people won't see what we're going to look at. We just got done our daily mass with absolution, the Protestant version. And so we have grace. We're saved by grace alone. And then our computers are filled with filth. In other words, here's the deal. The Corinthians lived in a society that was absolutely satiated with sexual immorality of every form. It's newspaper on the front had pictures of women being married in New York City. And it was boring. People lived with one another. It was so filled with sex that sex wasn't exciting anymore. There was no thrill. The thrill was gone. And the Christians jumped on the bandwagon. And the Apostle Paul is dealing with them. And he's saying to them, yeah, you have freedom, but it's to be profitable. You have freedom, but it's to be free, not mastered by anything. And then he says this. He says, the body, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So here you see the transition from the stomach and food into sexual immorality. Okay? The body is not for immorality. And so he's, he's, he's heightening the tension. He's heightening the intensity. Okay? That the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise up, up through his power. Now what's the point of that? Why does he talk about the resurrection? Huh? The reason he talks about the resurrection is he wants you to get a picture of standing before God, dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and having with you a prostitute. 
Do you understand that? He wants you to see that the day is going to soon come where you will be raised from the dead, your body, and next to you, you will have a prostitute that you are one with. Okay? The specter of the resurrection of your body is supposed to cause you to shrink in horror from the thought of what it will mean to stand before God given the sexual immorality that you do. Romans 8.11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, this is not 1 Corinthians 15. A wonderful comfort to those who face death or have lost loved ones. This is a warning. You join your body to a prostitute. You join your body to another man, and you're a man. You join your body to your father's wife. You join your body to wicked unbelievers. Your body will be raised, and you are one with them. And you will stand in the presence of God, one with everything that is obscene and filthy. And that's how you will stand before God. Now, at this point, knowing that all of us have been raised in similar churches, I know that you're sitting there going, well, that can't be, because we're saved by grace, and I'm not going to have to give an answer for everything. But do you know that the Bible says that every idle word will be judged? That's the one that really gets me. There will be a judgment of Christians. There will be a judgment of Christians. You say, yeah, but we're saved by grace through faith. We're not saved by our works or what we avoid doing that's wrong. And I say that's absolutely true. When we stand before God, we will stand dressed only in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which is completely sufficient for the chief of sinners. And when we stand, every idle word will be clear. And you go, well, that just doesn't feel affirming. It doesn't feel graceful. That doesn't give me the freedom I want. And I say, this is the teaching of Scripture. And you say, well, how do they go together? And I say, you know, I don't know. I thought about that many days of my life. But I know that there is a judgment of Christians, and I know that every Christian will stand dressed in the righteousness of Christ, and because of that, there will be no condemnation. (laughs) And you say, well, how does it work? I say, I don't know, but this place where he promises that you will be raised in your body is not a helpful thing. It is a warning. Now, how do I know that? Well, look at what goes on here. Look at where we're headed, okay? Here's what he says. He says, will raise us up through his power, 14. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And so you're going to be raised in your body. Don't you know that your body is a member, a part, united with Christ? All right, 
They're going to be raised in your body. Don't you know when you join your body to a prostitute, you become one with her? Do you see the logic of what he's saying? There's, there's no escaping it. You will be raised in your body. And that's not a promise to those about to die. It's a warning to those who are giving themselves to sexual immorality. And why is it a warning? Because you will stand before God having united yourself and become one flesh with a prostitute. And that should make you recoil in horror. That's the thought that causes him to then say what? Flee immorality. You don't want to stand before God like that. Your body will be raised. Flee immorality. You don't want to stand before God like that. You want to stand before God with, with, with Sarah and Gail and, and Debbie and, da -da 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 and Peter because, well, I thought I'd give it a try. You want to stand before God united to filth? That's how you want to stand before God. Picture, your body will be raised. Picture it. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? And listen, in the Greek, it's even clearer than I'm making it. Some of you think, well, I've never heard talk this direct in a church, and I say it's even more direct in the Greek. I mean, okay, think members. The Apostle Paul intends us to see body parts that we have used for wickedness and to think of those bodies standing in the presence of God at the resurrection and having those parts be joined to other people's parts. Do you understand that? We're supposed to be united with Christ. And instead, our members have been united with every form of filth. Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. And that's the statement the Apostle Paul uses when something boggles his mind with how awful it is. May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? Now, is this graphic enough for all of you? It's very interesting here, Calvin is very uncomfortable with what the text of the Word of God says here. Because he does not want to admit that the act of sex outside of marriage creates a union between the man and the woman, or the man and the man, or the man and who knows what. And so he sort of goes this way and that way and around, and he just... He's uncomfortable, but then at the end, he says, you know, the fact is, you do become one with her, and it is to the cursing of that union, whereas in marriage, it's to the blessing of the union. It's a cursed union. He finally ends up saying that.
Do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. Calvin there says, but that's not what Moses meant. Moses was talking about marriage. The two shall become one flesh. He did not intend that to be used to refer to unions of wickedness. But of course, Moses didn't write it, did he? Who wrote it? Huh? The Holy Spirit wrote it. Now, you know that I'm, I don't mean what I just said. Moses did write it, but the Holy Spirit inspired it. It is inspired by God. And therefore, what Moses meant at that point is exactly what the Holy Spirit intended Moses to mean. And we know what the Holy Spirit intended Moses to mean. Because here the Apostle Paul interprets the words of Moses by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so we know that this has application to the relationship of a man with a prostitute. We know that sexual intimacy is such that there's some deep, deep mysticism, spiritual. There's something very, very, very about sex. And so what? <laughs> if sex is something really deep, and if you belong to Christ and you're a member of his body, then you need to what? All right? Cover your ears. I'm going to do it. You need to what? You need to flee immorality. You need to flee flee immorality. You need to be like Joseph with Potiphar's wife. You need to run. He didn't care if he ended up in prison, if she lied about it. He didn't care if hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Okay? Okay? It was okay with him. How could I do this? My master has withheld nothing of his household except only you. <laughs> do you think a pastor is ever tempted by the women of his church? You ever thought about that? You know that pastors fall into sexual immorality all the time, right? So it must be that pastors could actually have sex with the women of his church, right? happens all the time, right? So how does a pastor keep from having sex with the women of his church? Flee! Ah! And nobody understands this today. Everybody thinks sex is boring, and so you should never raise your voice. You should never run. You should never leave your cloak in her hand. You should never even talk to her. Don't even admit that that woman is sitting in your office spreading her legs so you'll see her and want her. And, oh, boy, we're so precious. We're so more spiritual than God <laughs> and his word. Talking about members. And so we're like lambs to the slaughter are stupid. And you go, da, 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 da. Oh, I can't believe that just happened. 
this is ridiculous. In the early service, right, I was thinking about our children, and I was thinking, okay, children have no idea why you shouldn't have sex before you're married. And you can't get them to use their God-given brains to think about it because they just think that spirituality is easy and they'll just do what's right. And so I was trying to get them to think about it. What is it about sex before marriage that's wrong? Put on your thinking cap and try it out. Let's assume God gave you a brain to not just think about algebra, but to think about sex before marriage, right? So, bright ones, which mainly means Elliot, sorry, but it is Elliot, you know. So, Elliot, what's wrong with sex before marriage? Oh, he was... Well, just say it. Because you're one flesh with someone, but you're not supposed to be. Does that sound like a good answer? He said, because you're one flesh with somebody you're not supposed to be. The right answer, actually, and he's heard this, but he wouldn't lower himself to repeat it. The right answer is because you're not married. You remember me saying that. And everybody's going to sit here and go... You just ask what's wrong with sex before marriage. You can't answer it using the same words because you're not married. That's stupid. It doesn't answer anything. And I say, wait, wait, wait. It does. It does answer it. The reason you don't have sex before marriage is because you're not married. And you go, well, that's like a circular reasoning. It doesn't get us anywhere. It doesn't help me. I say, the reason you don't have sex before marriage is because you're not married. You have sex before marriage... You have sex with someone that very likely will not be your husband or wife, but just one of the many before you actually get married. The reason God prohibits sex before marriage is because you're not married. You don't want to marry someone who is stealing from your father. And you go, what does my father have to do with that? Because you belong to your father, your purity, your Virginia, virginity. It belongs to your dad. He is the protector. That's why even when, you know, British royalty gets married, although I didn't watch it, so I don't know that it happened, but almost every marriage they still say, who gives this woman to be married? They don't say that to the man. Why? Because it is the father's obligation to protect the purity of his daughter. You don't have sex before marriage because why? Because you're not married. And because what? You want to stand before God and give an account for how you're bringing along with you every boy in the youth group before you've met your wife? The reason you don't have sex outside of marriage is you don't want to stand before God and give an accounting for the fact that with you is your next door neighbor's wife. You don't want to have, if you're a man, a man standing with you because God says, no, that's an abomination. You don't want to have a woman with you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You have been bought with a price, the price of the precious blood of God. You must flee immorality. Glorify God in your body. 
and you say it's hard. The life of a Christian is made up of ever new beginnings. Whatever sexual immorality you give yourself to, repent of it right now. This last week I was talking to a father who is godly. And you know, godly fathers are very specific, observant, and practical. And he was describing to me how he does not allow his son to spend more than this number of minutes in the shower. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a helpful dad to have? Who keeps track of how long I'm in the shower? Here's a helpful dad. (laughs) You guys, come on. Don't be more spiritual than God. (laughs) You know, be helpful. And you say, well, I have no idea what you're talking about. And one of two things is true. Either you're a woman or you're a miserable father. And so I'll ask you afterwards to talk to a man who isn't even a father yet, and he'll explain it to you, and that's D. Wayne. You can explain it, right? I haven't talked to you about this ever, right? But you can explain it, right? Jody, can you explain it? All the men that can explain this, but see, if I got you to raise your hands, you'd lie. Okay, listen. The Apostle Paul loved the Corinthians, and I love you. I'm not the Apostle Paul, but I love you. That's why I'm so specific and so clear. And so this week, be helpful as a dad. This week, be pure. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Flee immorality. Let's pray. Father, we pray for every man and woman here that you will keep us from gothic romance novels and pornography and lustful eyes and the internet and everything that will lead us away from the purity that there is in Christ Jesus. We pray in his name.